From New York, this is Democracy Now! This is entrapment. You want to send informant into a impoverished community, the most impoverished county, to do your trickery. You ain't stumbled upon a cell. Nobody didn't tell you that someone was plotting to do anything. You created a crime. For the past 14 years, relatives of four men jailed on terrorism charges in Newburgh, New York, have accused the FBI of entrapment. On Thursday, a federal judge agreed and ordered the release of three of the men. In a stunning decision, the judge accused the FBI of inventing a conspiracy. We'll speak to two attorneys who spent over a decade trying to win the freedom of the Newburgh Four. Then a former OGB, a former OBGYN at Columbia University, Robert Haddon, has been sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison. He's accused of sexually assaulting hundreds of patients during examinations over two decades. We'll speak to two survivors and look at why Columbia ignored Haddon's behavior for so long. I was the first person to speak publicly about being sexually assaulted by Robert Haddon, uh, including when I was pregnant with my twin daughters. I was fortunate to be in court last week to watch the sentencing in his federal trial. Uh, It is certainly a milestone in what has been a many years long quest for justice. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Pakistan, at least 54 people were killed, 200 injured Sunday as explosions rocked a political rally in the northwestern Bajor district, which borders Afghanistan. The deadly blast was triggered by a suicide bomber during a gathering of the conservative Jamiat Ulema Ismail Faisal party, which is part of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif's ruling coalition. The bombing came amidst mounting insecurity ahead of elections planned for November. No one's yet claimed responsibility for the attack, though police said the Islamic State group could be to blame. A number of children died in the attack. Russia says it shot down three Ukrainian drones over Moscow Sunday, two of which damaged a high-rise building that may house government offices. It's the latest in a series of similar attacks the Kremlin has blamed on Kyiv. This is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Gradually, the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centers and military bases, and this is an inevitable, natural and absolutely fair process. On Saturday, Russian strikes killed at least two people in the northeastern Ukrainian city of Sumy and two people in Zaporizhia. Meanwhile, Deputy Security Council Chair and former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev said there would be no other option but to launch a nuclear attack if Ukraine is successful in its NATO-backed counteroffensive. Elsewhere, Poland sounded the alarm over Wagner forces in Belarus, which it says are moving closer to the Polish border. Following the Russia-Africa summit last week in St. Petersburg, Russian President Vladimir Putin said a peace initiative presented by African leaders could be the basis for ending the war if Ukraine ceased its attacks. Meanwhile, the African Union said Putin's offer to supply some African countries with grain was not sufficient to guarantee a stable food supply. President Putin said he was ready to help us with grain supplies. It is important, but maybe not enough. We need to achieve a ceasefire, because it is always something unpredictable. And the longer it is, the more unpredictable it becomes. 
In Chad, tens of thousands of refugees who fled violence in Sudan face another lethal threat, shortages of running water amid scorching temperatures. Sudanese refugees say the little water they have access to is needed for drinking, leaving little for toilets and sanitation. We wait for water for six hours and we spend the whole day here, overcrowded. There are water cuts, heat, hunger, thirst, and the water containers are limited. We have no pots, mattresses, blankets, or covers. We spend the day in the heat. Whether you come to get water, it's hot, or you sit in the tent, it's also hot. As heat waves envelop the globe, here in the United States, the Conference of Mayors and the National League of Cities are calling on Congress to pass the Extreme Heat Emergency Act. The bill would add extreme heat and wildfire smoke events to a list of disasters that can unlock supplemental assistance from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. On Thursday, a youth activist confronted White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre over President Biden's approval of new coal, oil and gas projects. This is Elise Joshi, executive director of Gen Z for Change. Will the administration stop approving new oil and gas projects and align with youth, science, and frontline communities from the north slope of Alaska to Louisiana? White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre then proceeded in a defense of the Biden administration before being interrupted again by Joshi. You have approved multiple projects since then and more at a faster rate than the Trump administration. We need you to act on your campaign promises. Declare Please. a climate emergency. In British Columbia, a third firefighter has died battling Canada's worst wildfire season on record, which has scorched some 30 million acres, an area larger than the nation of Cuba. Millions of Canadians and more than 120 million people across the United States have faced air quality alerts this summer due to smoke from the fires. In Turkey, security forces have unleashed water cannons and tear gas on villagers and activists protecting the Akbelen forest in the province of Mula from being cleared for coal mining. At least 14 people were arrested last week. Local communities and environmental groups have brought legal challenges and put their own bodies on the line in an attempt to stop YK Energy's expansion of open pit mining in Akbelen. An activist with the group Beyond Fossil Fuels said, quote, as tens of thousands of people across the Mediterranean region flee rampaging wildfires caused by the climate crisis. It's incomprehensible that a company is allowed to destroy a forest, one of our most important carbon sinks, to expand a coal mine, they said. The head of Niger's presidential guard has declared himself the leader of a transitional government following Wednesday's coup d'etat, which deposed the West African nation's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. On Friday, General Abdurrahman Chani said on state-run television the coup was necessary to prevent the gradual and inevitable demise of Niger. Over the weekend, ECOWAS, a bloc of 15 West African nations, slapped sanctions on leaders of the coup and threatened to expel them by force unless they cede power within a week. On Sunday, thousands of supporters of the junta attempted to storm the French embassy in the capital Niamey burning French flags and chanting slogans against Niger's former colonial ruler. They were turned away by soldiers firing tear gas. Many Nigerians are rejecting the interference of foreign actors following the coup. 
the international community that says it's here for us, we don't want it. We don't want its moral lesson because it's no longer credible in the eyes of Africans. We can't understand why they support a coup d'etat in Chad and oppose them in Mali and Burkina Faso. It's an internal problem, which only concerns Nigerians. If we call on them, they can cooperate with us, but we don't want their moral lessons. In Kenya, the government of President William Ruto and the opposition coalition agreed to establish a joint committee to, quote, resolve their differences following deadly protests earlier this month. Opposition leader Raila Odinga called the protests over the high cost of living and tax hikes on Friday. An appeals court lifted a freeze on the contested tax law, which doubles fuel taxes and introduces a new housing levy. Some activists have questioned the court's move. We are fearing uh, that there is an executive interference uh, in that ruling uh, because prior to this we saw the executive come out boldly uh, condemning the courts, uh, declaring the courts that the courts are uh, against uh, the government, the courts are uh, being used by external forces. In Lebanon, at least five people were killed Sunday during clashes between rival groups in one of the largest Palestinian refugee camps near the city of Sidon. The fighting broke out after an unknown gunman tried to assassinate an Islamist militant leader, killing a companion instead. In response, militants killed a military general and three other members of the Fatah group, which is part of the Palestinian Authority. At least seven people were also wounded in the violence, including at least two children. Palestinian factions in the camp have for years cracked down on militant Islamist groups. The overcrowded Ain al-Hilwa camp houses some 55,000 Palestinians. In related news, the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, and the leader of Hamas have formed a reconciliation committee aimed at uniting rival Palestinian political movements. Abbas and Ismail Haniya met for rare in-person talks in Egypt Sunday, along with the heads of other Palestinian groups. Hamas, which runs a parallel government in the besieged Gaza Strip, has called on the Palestinian Authority to end its security collaboration with Israel and cease the detention of political prisoners. The group has also called for the formation of an inclusive Palestinian parliament through democratic elections. Friction between Hamas and Fatah, the dominant party in the Palestinian Authority, has persisted since 2007 after violence erupted between the two groups over control of Palestinian territories. In the United States, the Justice Department has launched a civil rights investigation into the Memphis police. This is Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General at the DOJ. We received multiple reports of officers escalating encounters with community members resulting in excessive force. There are also indications that officers may use force punitively when faced with behavior they perceive to be insolent. The information we reviewed also shows that officers may use force against people who are already restrained or in custody. The targeting and abuse of black residents by Memphis police came under a national spotlight following the January killing of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man who was pepper sprayed and fatally beaten by police during a traffic stop. And a federal judge has blocked an Arkansas law that would allow criminal charges against librarians and booksellers for providing quote-unquote, harmful materials to children and teens. The law, signed by Republican governor, former Trump spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders in March, would have gone into effect tomorrow, Tuesday. 
The ACLU filed the lawsuit on behalf of various Arkansas libraries, bookstores, librarians, and readers. 17-year-old plaintiff, high school student Hayden Kirby, said, quote, I want to fight for our rights to intellectual freedom and ensure that libraries remain spaces where young Arkansans can explore diverse perspectives, she said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, in a stunning decision, a federal judge has ordered the release of three New York men who were entrapped by the FBI and sentenced to 25 years in prison for their role in a government-orchestrated bombing plot. Stay with us. By Godspeed, you black emperor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A federal judge has ordered the release of three New York men who were sentenced to 25 years in prison for their role in a government-orchestrated bombing plot. The men, who were all black and Muslim converts, became known as the Newburgh Four. They were convicted in 2010 and sentenced to 25 years in prison for placing what they thought were bombs in a New York synagogue. Supporters of the men have long argued they were entrapped by the government. On Thursday, U.S. District Judge Colleen McMahon issued a stunning ruling ordering the compassionate release of three of the four men. In her ruling, she wrote, quote, a person reading the crimes of conviction in this case would be left with the impression that the offending defendants were sophisticated international terrorists committed to jihad against the United States. However, they were in actual reality hapless, easily manipulated, penurious, petty criminals. McMahon said the men were not terrorists, but, quote, impoverished, small-time grifters and drug users, street-level dealers who could use some money. She wrote, quote, the FBI invented the conspiracy, identified the targets, manufactured the ordinance, unquote. The FBI has relied on an informant who was involved in several other high-profile entrapment cases within the Muslim community. Democracy Now! has closely followed the case of the Newburgh Four since 2010, when Democracy Now!'s Anjali Comet and Hani Massoud and Jackie Suen of Big Noise Films traveled through Muslim communities in New York and New Jersey to track the Newburgh case and two other entrapment cases. In October 2010, Democracy Now! aired a special investigation into these cases. This clip begins with Anjali Khamen. 
On May 20, 2009, four African-American men from the city of Newburgh, New York, were arrested outside a synagogue in the Bronx. Known as the Newburgh Four, they made national headlines as stark examples of homegrown terror. Prosecutors described the suspects as extremely violent men who embraced every opportunity for terrorism. More than a year after their arrest, the Newburgh Four are now facing trial in Manhattan for conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction and anti-aircraft missiles. But the case has raised serious questions about the government's role in creating and then foiling fake terror plots. The suspects were duped. The bombs and missile were fake, supplied by the FBI and NYPD. Alicia McCollum is the aunt of David Williams, one of the Newburgh Four. Since his arrest, she's tried to mobilize support for her nephew. Taking the train to the first day of the trial in August, she's visibly upset. I was restless last night. I couldn't even sleep. You know, it was just so much. You know, you think about the family and what you're getting ready to go through. And it's like this whole year fighting for the case. And now it's like finally happening. We're going to trial. And just worry, you know, that the government, you know, want to make a case so bad that my nephew can go away for life. So it's just been like heavy on my mind last night. Very heavy. Like the other members of the Newburgh Four, 29-year-old David Williams lived in the economically devastated city of Newburgh and had served prison time on drug charges and petty criminal offenses. All four men were converts to Islam, and one of them, Laguerre Payen, is a Haitian-born immigrant and a paranoid schizophrenic. Alicia says she was shocked when she heard that these four men were being called terrorists. That was an excerpt from the 2010 Democracy Now! investigation by Anjali Comet and Jackie Suen. Alicia McWilliams McCullum went on to directly accuse the government of entrapping her nephew. This is entrapment. You want to send an informant into a impoverished community, the most impoverished county, to do your trickery. You ain't stumbled upon a cell. Nobody ain't tell you that someone was plotting to do anything. You created a crime. That was Alicia McWilliams McCullum speaking in 2010. She died last year after fighting for over a decade for the release of her nephew, David Williams, and the other members of the Newburgh Four. Well, David Williams, Anta Williams, Laguerre Payen, will now be released within 90 days after last week's stunning judicial ruling. We're joined now by two lawyers who are part of the Coalition for Civil Freedoms, which was founded in 2010 to challenge preemptive prosecution and the post-9-11 targeting surveillance and criminalization of Muslim communities. Kathy Manley is legal, directive, is legal director for the Coalition for Civil Freedoms, and Stephen Downs is the chair of the coalition's board of directors, former chief attorney for the Commission on Judicial Conduct in New York State. Stephen Downs and Kathy Manley, welcome to Democracy Now! Uh, Kathy Manley, why don't we start with you? The significance of this ruling yesterday by the federal judge. Tell us exactly what she said and how this came about after what it's been over, well over a decade. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Thanks for having us. Um, it, it was, at first, I got to say, it was so poignant to hear Alicia's voice because she was at the heart of the support for these men all these years. She was she brought a lot of us together. She inspired us. And when we filed this motion, she was still alive. And we really, really wanted her to see this, to see them get released. And unfortunately, that wasn't to be. Hopefully, she's up there smiling. But this is a significant ruling. This was a wonderful decision. It took a year and a half to happen. But we're so happy that the judge was she always understood this case was unfair. She called it 
the unterrorism case from day one. And she always understood that the 25-year mandatory minimum sentence was way too harsh. And But there was nothing, she believed there was nothing she could do about it because basically there is no entrapment defense in the law. And I can talk about that if I have time. But um, there was no way for her um, to avoid doing this, she believed. And when we filed this motion, that gave her an opportunity in a compassionate release motion to say this sentence is too harsh. And she did say so. Um, and and. It is a wonderful ruling because it shows that the government created this entire case. You know, the judge is saying this. This is what we've been saying all along. She couldn't say it was entrapment because there's no entrapment defense. The law doesn't consider this entrapment, but it is entrapment. It's the classic definition of entrapment. And um, we're just really grateful that she understood the unfairness of this case and now they will be released. Stephen Downs, if you can lay out the case for us, and also let's be clear that the judge, Judge Colleen McMahon, is the original judge, right? She has basically reversed her decision. Yeah. Thank you, Amy, for having us on. Uh, this is a wonderful uh, democracy now has stood with us for years in uh, calling out the unfairness of this case. Uh, and I think people were onto it very early. Uh, what what simply happened was that the uh, government sent down their their key man, Shahid Hussein, who had entrapped people up in Albany and had nothing better to do with him. So they sent him down to hang out in a mosque in Newburgh. And the mosque very quickly caught on to him that he was a phony and a government informant, and they kicked him out. So he sent, went out into the parking lot and began to talk to anybody he could find. So let's do jihad. Let's get involved. I'm incredibly rich. I've got money, money, money. And he hooked some guy who was uh, Cromedy, who got interested in this, not because I think he was at all interested in uh, jihad, but because he was interested in the money. And they talked and off and on, and Cromedy backed out after a while. And then they, uh, Shahid Hussein realized that he was going to lose this fish that he had hooked unless he upped it. And so he came back to him with an offer saying, uh, we, I'll pay $250,000. Um, and he later tried to deny that in a lie, and the government allowed him to do that. But he, they, there's a tape recording. I was actually making that offer, $250,000. Uh, and so they decided to go ahead with this uh, plot. Uh, I believe somebody all along intended to try to get the money and not to do anything, not to harm anybody, because that was not his nature. Just before they... Uh, plot was to go down a few weeks before the government suddenly realized that they wanted more people. They wanted to entrap larger numbers. It wouldn't look good if they were just entrapping one person. So they told Crumbody he needed uh, some lookouts. And so he went out and hired and, and uh, recruited these three uh, young kids who just needed money. And uh, in one case, certainly in David Williams' case, he he desperately needed the money. Uh, to get his uh, brother a liver transplant. Um, and so they they joined in for a very brief time, and uh, then the whole thing came down on top of them. There was, I think, never any doubt that the whole purpose of this was the government trying to buy crime with money, offering money to get the crime. It had nothing to do with terrorism. It had nothing to do with protecting a community against a group of people. What I find really offensive about it was that they then took these entrapment cases and turned them on the Muslim community 
and used it to generate hatred against the Muslim community by making all sorts of lies and exaggerated statements about what the case was about. They became a purveyor of hate, really, against the Muslim community. And the government has absolutely no business doing that. So that's how it it, uh, happened. In 2014, HBO aired the documentary The Newberg Sting, which featured secret recordings of conversations between the undercover FBI informant Shahid Hussein and James Cromedy, one of the men who became part of the Newberg Four. You have to listen really carefully because some of the audio can be hard to understand. The clip begins with James Cromedy. None, none of these brothers got jobs, huh? Uh-huh. Only there's three of us without no jobs. True. But actually, how you think we feel, huh? We getting ready to do all this, huh? We ain't got no money in our pockets, huh? How you think we feel? Look at me, brother. Uh-huh. How you think they feel? Yeah. If these brothers are doing for money, I don't need them. SubhanAllah. No, I, I, t- I, talk I talk to them, them already. Okay. They already know. Yeah, okay. And they're not even worried about it. It is for, uh, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that's all it is. And if they won't need for money or greediness, or they, they think they're going to make any money or, uh, or angerness, please do not, because this is jihad. This is jihad, and that's what jihad is. But you, you know what they think, huh? Uh-huh. They can use the money, though. So, and that's FBI informant Shahid Hussein and James Cromedy, one of the men who became part of the Newburgh Four. Kathy Manley, um, if you can talk about who the FBI informant was, the fact that he had what? He had fled Pakistan, perhaps wanted for murder. He didn't want to be deported. So he was desperate to entrap these men or do what the FBI wanted. Yeah, he was he was at one point wanted for murder in Pakistan. I don't know the details of that, but after having seen his trajectory in the US, it's a a long trail of slime. Like he just kept ripping people off, conning people, tricking people out of their money, and then eventually was caught in um a case where he was defrauding the DMV, he was getting people fake driver's licenses, working with a corrupt DMV employee, and the FBI was going to send him to prison and then deport him to Pakistan. But instead, they gave him an opportunity to work for them in Albany, in our case, the case of Yasin Araf and Mohammed Hossein. And he did very successfully, wrongfully prosecute them very you know, he's so deceptive and slimy and they ended up getting convicted and sentenced to 15 years. And we thought this guy is so dishonest and every the jury hated him. They probably won't use him again. But sure enough, we found out they used him in the Newberg case and they used him in other cases. The FBI loves this guy. And after the Newberg case, they used him in the Khalifa al-Akili case in Pittsburgh. And that was featured in the documentary t Air by Lyric Cabral and uh, David Sutcliffe. Uh, and that um, that actually featured the clip of the two, of Shahed Hussain offering James Cromedy the $250,000 when he didn't realize he was being recorded. Um, so this guy, then he went on to form this limousine company in the Albany, the capital region. And that was very tragically the limousine that killed 20 people in Schoharie County in 2018. And he was in Pakistan at that point, letting his son run the company and basically telling him how to do it, telling him, don't worry if the brakes don't work. It doesn't really matter. We don't care. And uh, his son is now doing five to 15 year sentence while he sits in Pakistan, hanging out with his super rich brother, Malik, who kind of destabilized the government in Pakistan. So this guy has a long history.
So, um, Stephen Downs, let's end with you. Um, you have three of four of the Newberg Four going to be released within 90 days, compassionate release. Um, what happens with Cromarty, the fourth? And then the fact that this FBI informant who did a sting operation in, in Albany, the Fort Dix Five, um, uh, Pittsburgh, does this all begin to unravel these cases? Well, first of all, I just saw a uh, letter from Comedy's uh, lawyer that he's sending to the court asking to be appointed to represent him. So I'm pretty sure that uh, Comedy is going to make a move to also uh, be released. Um, of course, his case is different than the others. All, all the cases are slightly different, so he will have to present that to the court. But I think it, it looks pretty good that the judge will grant that. Uh, in terms of the second part of that, uh, we there's a lot of cases that look like this case. This is a particularly clear, dramatic example of it. But this was the government's standard uh, operating procedure uh, right after 9-11. They were out there going to uh, create as many terrorists as they could uh, to show the, gov the public, I think, that they were on the job, that they knew what they were doing, that they were uh, keeping America safe. And if they couldn't find any real terrorists, and they couldn't, there really weren't any real terrorists around, they had to create them. And that's what they did. They created these terrorists. So we have a lot of cases out there. The Fort Dix Five is one. The uh, Holy Land Five is another case. Uh, Afia Siddiqui is another case. Uh, we, you can go down a whole long list of these cases. And some of them, and, and particularly the Holy Land Five and the Newburgh and the Fort Dix Five, uh, have essentially life sentences. They will probably die in jail. So there's a really high priority on us trying to get these cases out, these people out. And so we're going to really need a lot of work to go in there and uh, start to uh, try different theories to get them out. This case is a godsend to us. It really underlies the whole hypocrisy of the government's uh, position and allows us to argue now in these other cases, the same thing happened here. This is no different. You just have to look at the facts and realize that these people were set up. Uh, so I, I'm, I see our work is cut out for us now. Um, the, uh, this particular case shows the way. It may not be through compassionate release motions. We may, we may have to try other strategies. But I think, in a way, what it does is it breaks the, um, the assumption that these cases were real cases. Uh, it shows that the government had a policy of creating cases when they couldn't find any real cases and then pretending that they were real cases and demonizing the Muslim community in the meantime. So that's what we're going to have to work on, I, I think, you know, over the next few years. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us. Stephen Downs, chair of the board for the Coalition for Civil Freedoms, former chief attorney of the Commission on Judicial Conduct in New York State, and Kathy Manley, legal director for Coalition for Civil Freedoms. Next up, a former obstetrician gynecologist at Columbia University, Dr. Robert Haddon, has been sentenced to 20 years in a federal prison, accused of sexually assaulting hundreds and hundreds of patients during examinations over 20 years. We'll speak to two survivors, two of his patients, and look at why Columbia ignored Dr. Haddon's behavior for so long. Stay with us. Stand like an oak
shoulder It's in you, don't falter And if so, then I got you Fake it, walk taller Anything that makes you feel smaller Leave them by the angels of the water Push them up, push them up Like an Oak by Rising Appalachia. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning to our listeners, to our viewers, to our readers. This next segment includes discussion of sexual assault. Here in New York, former Columbia University gynecologist Dr. Robert Haddon has been sentenced to 20 years in prison on federal sexual abuse charges. The sentencing comes after Haddon was convicted in January of luring patients across state lines to appointments here in Manhattan, where he sexually assaulted them. U.S. District Judge Richard Berman handed down the maximum prison sentence Tuesday, calling the case unprecedented because of Haddon's hundreds of victims and how his abuse continued for two decades at Columbia. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams called Haddon a predator in a white coat, whose victims, quote, trusted him as a physician only to instead become victims of his heinous predilection, unquote. One of the survivors, Evelyn Yang, the wife of former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, wrote, quote, to this day, I'm still waiting for Columbia University to notify former patients that a now twice convicted sex offender worked at Columbia for 20 plus years. They've been saying that that's not their responsibility. But how does that make sense? Yang asked. After Haddon was found guilty in January, Evelyn Yang responded to the verdict on a CNN exclusive interview. I feel such relief um, and gratitude, you know, the fact that we almost had a second chance at it, right? So the first time he was convicted, he basically got a slap on the wrist. And this time, I feel like it was the first time in this trial that a fuller extent of his crimes were presented and considered. Lawyers representing survivors say Columbia University had a long history of ignoring Haddon's behavior in order to protect its reputation instead of acting in the victim's interests. So far, Columbia and New York Presbyterian Hospital paid out $171 million in claims in 2021 to 79 former patients and $165 million in two 2022 to 147 former patients. In 2016, Haddon pleaded guilty in New York state court to abusing two women as part of what survivors called a slap on the wrist plea deal with the then Manhattan district attorney's office, Cy Vance. Uh, Haddon lost his medical license but avoided prisoner probation. In response to advocacy from survivors, last May, New York state passed the Adult Survivors Act, 
which created a special one-year look-back window to allow individuals who are 18 or older when they were sexually assaulted in the state to file a lawsuit against the person who harmed them and or the negligent institution. The act was enacted November 24th last year. Now lawyers are filing another round of lawsuits under the New York Adult Survivors Act. A correction. That was a $71 million lawsuit in 2021, $165 million lawsuit in 2022, settled with Columbia, bringing it to about $236 million. We're joined right now by two guests who are former patients of Dr. Haddon. Lori Maldonado attended the trial of former Columbia University um, Dr. Haddon and gave testimony in January before he was remanded. He was a gyneco- she was a gynecology and then an obstetrics patient of Haddon's between 2003 and 2012. And Marissa Hochstetter gave a victim impact statement during the federal trial of Haddon. In 2015, she reported Dr. Haddon to the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance, and became one of the first people to speak out against Haddon publicly. She was a patient of Haddon's from 2010 to 2012. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Marissa, let's begin with you. Your response to the 20-year sentence that Haddon received and what you're pursuing now. Well, thank you so much for that introduction and for having us. Um, you know, it, it is an important milestone in a, in a years-long quest for justice. Uh, Haddon is someone who has received special treatment and really continued to evade accountability for a very long time. Um, so it is certainly um, a sort of vindication and, and gratifying to, to see that sentence to be there. Um, but ultimately, uh, prison for someone like him does not get at the institutional accountability and does not repair the harm done to me and uh, many other people. But it is uh, it was really something incredible to witness. Uh, And I wanted to um, also ask Lori Maldonado, you were in the courtroom um, when uh, Robert Haddon was sentenced. Talk about your response first to the guilty verdict. And now you were not one of the uh, people involved in this case, but you did get to testify. That's very interesting. And if you could explain why. Thank you, Amy, uh, for having us. Um, It's an honor to be on Democracy Now! and to bring light of this issue. Um, it's so great to hear Evelyn's voice before. Um, um, just she's has notified so many women, um, and to have Marissa on here with me, I'm so inspired by um, so many of these women. Um, you had asked about uh, my response um, to to the trial, um, and really, it was a step towards justice. Um, Marissa and I, and many survivors, were in the courtroom. Um, There were nine that um, testified, um, and brave, courageous women were cross-examined, and that's what what the jury gave the verdict on. And then we had the opportunity, um, Judge Berman gave the women the opportunity um, to give testimony to Haddon and to him. Um, And so a lot of us women, um, it just, it was powerful, it was intense. Um, And we were really able to share our stories, um, and we were validated and heard. Um, And that was just a really big um, part of of the experience, Um, and just grateful. I I later found out that Judge Berman um, was a social worker and got his MSW um, from Fordham, and I'm a social worker. And so I really appreciate um, how he held um, the the case um, and just allowing um, survivors to come forward. 
Laurie, if you could share your story, whatever you feel comfortable with, how you came to be Dr. Haddon's patient, um, uh, you used him as a gynecologist for years, and then you became pregnant, and um, he was uh, an obstetrician gynecologist. Talk about what happened and how this process took place. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of women, right? Oh, Amy, um, I, the last time I heard 250 women, and now I think I've heard the number 340, um, and we think that um, it's hundreds. Um, so uh, this is a lot of women that were involved. Um, I first saw Haddon um, in 2003, about. Um, I was in my mid-20s, um, and, you know, I selected Haddon to be my OBGYN um, because it was at Columbia, you know, University of New York Presbyterian Hospital. So that was this prestigious hospital. Um, and so I um, started that uh, relationship all the way up till 2012. So almost a decade, um, Haddon was my doctor. Um, I, like many um, women, you know, trusted Haddon with my care. Um, I trusted him with my well-being. Um, I thought he had my best in interest in mind. Um, and he was a sexual, a serial sexual predator um, that had really, um, you know, every, every visit was, was an opportunity for him to, to commit abuse and assault. Um, I think, you know, early on there was lots of grooming behaviors, and, and we heard a lot of this from the, the um, testimonies that women gave. And the same thing for me, um, long breast exams, um, you know, um, a vaginal, ex a vaginal exams. He would say, ask inappropriate questions um, about your sex life. Um, he told me. And he told many of the women um, that, oh, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you have a tilted uterus, and so that just means I have to go a little bit deeper on the exams. Um, so, and part of that, of me being young, of this being uh, my first OBGYN, so not knowing the standard of care, um, that, was, that I didn't realize um, that each, each visit was, um, was abuse. Um, and, and were there so nurses in the room? If you can talk about that and also um, the fact that um, he yeah. didn't use gloves when he was examining you, um, this issue of saying you had a tilted uterus uh, made you, in an odd sense, more beholden to him because you thought you wanted to be pregnant, you wanted to make sure, and he talked with you about, um, you know, he could make sure that you would be pregnant. Yeah. Uh, thank you for for asking those questions. Um, you know exactly. So I, there um, there was never a nurse um, that I can recall present in the room, or they might have done the first um, you know kind of the the vitals and then had left the room. And um, so you were often alone with him. Um, he would often you know s say, "Oh, you have lots of moles. I just want to make sure they're not cancerous." So it would be an opportunity for him you know to totally um, take you out of the gown. Um, and so there, there, there was a lot of, of that. Um, there's something to Amy of just, you know, really wanting to be pregnant. And I had miscarried um, earlier um, around um, before the birth of, of my son. And, you know, I, um, he had told me, oh, well, you know, you're, you're going to get pregnant. Um, you know, my um, predecessor invented the Rogam shot in the 1960s. 
and um, because you're Rh negative, we're going to give the shot to you, and that will make it so you won't miscarry. So he would use knowledge, um, you know, where you would actually believe, like, he could be my only OBGYN. Um, because he's the only one that could deliver my baby. Um, so he, he really used knowledge, um, uh, you know, to kind of allure women into trusting him and having a long relationship. What happened when you were nine months pregnant? Uh, um, and just say what you feel uh, comfortable saying. Thank you. Um, I was um, sexually assaulted by Robert Haddon two days before the birth of my child. I went in for, um, you know, my kind of, my, my checkup. My ex-husband was in the room with me, um, and we were just excited. I remember that in the office room, my, I went to the bathroom, and my mucus plug had dropped, so I was really imminent away, away from the birth, and I, we were really excited. Um, and Haddon came in the room, and he had a glimmer in his eye. And I thought that that glimmer was that he was excited like me for the birth. But now I realize it was an opportunity for him um, to commit sexual assault. And um, he, you know, I, he later said, oh, you know, one more thing. I, I, um, I need to check you. And he took me behind the curtain um, away from my husband and put me on the exam table. And what I thought was, you know, that he was going to check my cervix um, just to make sure that the baby was okay. Um, but that's not what happened. Um, <laughs> um, what did happen um, was Haddon um, used his hands to harm me, and he stuck his fist inside of my vagina. And it was so painful, and I screamed. Um, and I cried out in pain, and um, he abruptly left the room. Uh, my husband uh, at the time uh, came over uh, to me, checked on me. He said, are you okay? Um, and I was like, no, I'm not okay. And then he asked me a really important question. He said, do you feel violated? And I said, yes. Um, and. I think I, I, was, I felt violated and I was confused because I didn't know if that was a medical procedure, um, you know, or, or what that was about. Um, so I was really, uh, you know, I couldn't stand. I had a tough time sitting. I couldn't eat. Um, I was really um, disturbed, you know, and at that moment, um, and I think this happens, you second guess yourself. Um, and later I understood that, you know, what I did was um, I repressed that. Uh, memory, because um, I had to survive the moment, and I was giving birth in 48 hours, right, um, that I was, I was in labor, and so my husband and I just kind of, um, we, we kind of, we, we focused on the labor. So you give birth to this beautiful baby boy. Uh, from that moment that he punched you, he disappeared, the doctor. He disappeared, yeah. He didn't correct. deliver your son. And what did you come to understand after? And, um, and this brings Columbia into the story. I mean, it was involved before, too, because you actually went to him because of that uh, sort of his elite credentials. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I think so. Um, 
you know, when I went to see him, so I, I went a few visits after um, to see Haddon, and I remember that um, I showed up and um, I was told that Haddon took a leave, um, and that was it, right? And I saw um, another doctor um, who just said, hey, I, I noticed you were a longtime patient of Haddon. I wanted to make sure you're okay. Right, um, you know, so never, you know, um, never kind of saying that Haddon was arrested, um, right? Never kind of coming forward and just seeing if I was okay in that moment. Um, so I think that that was part of it, right? That we were never notified. Um, the the way we were notified were people like Marissa and Diane Munson and um, Evelyn Yang. There's all these. That's how we were notified. Um, when I first realized um, the scale, this was about when my son was um, a few years old, between two and three, I was on the subway, and, um, you know, it was New York subway, commuting to work, and um, I saw the picture of Haddon that said, Gyno is a sicko, right? And I had a panic attack on my way to work, realizing, you know, going back to that moment, realizing that was sexual assault, you know, realizing I had this, this doctor for such a long time um, and, you know, just being in shock. We're talking to Lori Maldonado, who is right there at the sentencing of Dr. Haddon, uh, who testified um, at the trial. Marissa Hochstetter, you were there, too. Uh, you, too, a patient, a victim of Dr. Haddon. Uh, can you now take us forward, Marissa, um, because there's this larger issue. You've got the man who's going to prison for years, and then you've got the institution he worked for. And you have the fact that Haddon actually um, did have a plea deal with the previous New York DA. Now it's Alvin Bragg, but before him was Cy Vance. And explain what you now understand was happening with Haddon, the number of people who had come forward and complained to Columbia. Yeah. Um, thank you, Laurie, for, for sharing so much um, with us and with the audience. Um, I'm always in awe when I when I listen to you. Um, we know that Haddon saw something like six to eight thousand patients in his twenty plus year career uh, at Columbia New York Presbyterian Hospital. Um, I firmly believe that he went into this profession with the intent to uh, use his position of power and privilege and, and abuse people. So I think as more continues to come out, uh, the institution has an obligation to at least inform patients of um, what they were exposed to. Uh, I don't know the names of those six to 8,000 patients, but they surely uh, could make a good faith effort to notify people. So uh, we know that they received um, at least one letter uh, in the early 90s uh, complaining from a patient complaining about being sexually assaulted by him. They wrote back. Uh, the head of the department at the time acknowledged her letter and said he would look into it after his vacation, and he never did. Um, we heard nurses testify in the trial. We've had other people come forward. Um, we know that there were earlier settlements um, with victims, that they were forced to sign uh, NDAs. So uh, Columbia very much knew uh, about his behavior and ultimately, I think, was uh, just thinking only about their own liability. Um, you know, one thing that I think is important to note, and Evelyn has shared this in her story, but um, 
He was arrested in June of 2012 um, when someone uh, called the police about his behavior. And Columbia allowed him to come back to work uh, for about six or eight weeks. And he assaulted people during that period. So even if you put aside whatever has come forward about his you know, decades-long career, um, they very tangibly knew that he had been arrested for sexual assault by the New York Police Department and allowed him to continue working. Um, I, like Lori, uh, read some of the headlines, you know, in the New York Post, the New York Daily News, and it felt very salacious. Um, It was validating in some ways because I knew I wasn't alone, but uh, it was not something that I really wanted to kind of speak publicly about. Um, I continued to follow the original criminal prosecution and ultimately did go forward to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to report what had happened to me because I felt really strongly that the women who were involved in that not be alone. And I wanted to uh, make sure that I was using my voice to validate them, to support them, and to make sure that this person wouldn't practice again. Um, What, you know, kind of in hindsight and looking back, this experience was happening kind of right before the Me Too movement. Uh, and then through the the news reporting on Harvey Weinstein uh, and others really that the, the Manhattan DA at the time had really given preferential treatment to white men in positions of power who were accused of sexual assault. Um, I came to realize that the treatment that Haddon had received, while his name at the time was not famous, um, Columbia and his attorneys had really accessed that same sort of network um, of position and privilege. Uh, his attorney made a campaign contribution to Cy Vance on the day that the plea agreement was reached in 2015. Um, things like that that were were really hard to um, unsee. And so I never really set out wanting to talk about being sexually assaulted while I was pregnant, Um, but I wanted to talk about the failure of the justice system. So I wanted to get your response to Columbia University and its affiliated hospitals announcing their $165 million settlement with 147 of Robert Haddon's former patients last year. Uh, Columbia University Irving Medical Center released this statement saying, we deeply regret the pain that Robert Haddon's patients suffered and hope that these resolutions will provide some measure of support for the women he hurt. All those who came forward should be commended. We are committed to the safety and dignity of every one of our patients and have adopted policies to ensure that they are protected and empowered while in our care. So you've got that settlement of $167 million with Columbia. You've got another $171 million. I think it's up to $236 million, about a quarter of a billion dollars that Columbia has to pay out. Um, are you part of those two settlements, Marissa? Um, I'm not part of those settlements. I have a separate um, settlement agreement with Columbia. Um, The thing I would say about settlements is that um, a lot gets focused on the number, right? These are big numbers. They're mostly being paid by insurance companies. Um, I don't think that any of that is affecting the bottom line. Um, We have uh, not a lot of options to offer recourse to survivors. So um, even that, I think, you know, the number could be justifiably even higher. And I think it should continue to go up as more people um, seek uh, a resolution um, with them. You know, that statement you read uh, really only came after years, 
years of asking for some response from them. Um, before I spoke publicly, I asked for them to participate in a process whereby I could get a new birth certificate for my children that didn't have Robert Haddon's name, and they refused to speak to me. Um, their initial statements were much more distant from uh, what had happened. So one of the things I think through our public um, advocacy and really the passage of the Adult Survivors Act, which you, you mentioned in the introduction, um, kind of forced their hand. Um, when you remove statutes of limitation uh, from the equation, um, they have to be much more responsible to the people coming forward. And just to be um, clear, so, are yeah. there a number of women who are suing him now as a result of what you pushed through the uh, adult, the New York Adult Survivors Act that Kathy Hochul, the governor, signed last year, which, by the way, separately allowed E. Jean Carroll to go back and sue former President Trump under? Correct. I mean, it um, really, the Adult Survivors Act was about putting the power back in the hands of survivors, all survivors. Um, of course, I was advocating for uh, women that I knew uh, assaulted by Haddon. Um, I, I think the number of additional lawsuits we'll see is in the hundreds. Um, you know, people focus on the numbers um, uh, of people coming forward. I think it's important to also acknowledge that the Adult Survivors Act forces the institutions to come to the table earlier in mediation. Um, so whether or not something actually becomes filed and um, goes to to a lawsuit, you know, focusing on the number isn't always maybe the best measure. But uh, it gave a lot of leverage to a lot of survivors. And explain what you pushed through in the New York City Council and this issue with your twin daughters of not having Haddon's name on their beautiful birth certificate. Yeah, you know, it was really something uh, very sentimental and kind of emotional for me when I went to register them for kindergarten and um, I pulled out this document that I needed to provide to the, the school district and his name was there, um, name of attendant at delivery. Uh, not all states have this. Uh, if I had, you know, given birth at home, uh, could have been my husband's name on there, could have been a, you know, taxi driver on the West Side Highway, but uh, it was his name. And um, I felt like this gut punch that um, this person who had harmed me and, you know, I had a C-section. Um, I, I think the most painful part often for me is that his hands cut open my body, reached in and took my children out. You know, he was the first person in the whole world to touch them. And that's not something I can change. And I just really did not want his name to remain on this document for them. I have to deal with the connection to him, but I wanted to, to end that for them. Um, we have yeah. 10 seconds. Long story short, um, it mostly because Columbia would not provide uh, additional information to the state, it needed to be uh, legislated. And we passed a law that allowed for if doctors have lost their medical license, you can have their name redacted from these official documents. Well, Marissa Hochstetter and Lori Maldonado, the survivors of a now convicted and sentenced OBGYN, thank you for joining us.